0: Hello everybody, welcome to episode 65 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray and what matters this week is the same thing that always matters at this time of the year, the US Masters, the 80th staging of the tournament that fascinates fans beyond just the golf world, promises any number of potentially great storylines and might just be the most anticipated in recent memory. Joining me to discuss all things Augusta National and perhaps a couple of other topics As well is, as always, writer, commentator, TV personality, and as of this week host of the number one sports podcast on iTunes with his new show, Shack House. It's Jeff Shack of a check. Welcome and congrats on the new venture, which uh, seems to be going brilliantly, frankly.
1: So far, so good. I, I, it has nothing to do with anything I did. It's all Bill Simmons. He's uh, probably not big down in Australia, but he's a very uh, beloved figure here and, as a uh, sports fan and writer, commentator, and, and amazing podcaster. I don't know if you've listened to any of his shows, but... Uh, you might look through the list. You might see a few actors or people that might be fun, but mostly he talks American sports and movies and stuff, so he, probably not big in Australia.
0: Well, if he continues to hitch his wagon to your coattail shack, he'll quickly develop a following down. Yeah,
1: here. right, as, right. He'll pick up you <laughs> you have, no doubt. golf fans, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Indeed. From here in Australia, course designer, touring pro, magazine columnist, and co-host of the 100-and-something ranked podcast on iTunes, Mike Clayton. Clayton, Clayton it's good to have you aboard. No doubt Masters figure taking hold for you as well.
2: Yeah, thank you, Right, Always interesting in Australia to – well, now that Adam Scott's won, we're not so excited about it anymore because we finally got one got to win here. So it's, it's fortunate that story has got – that perennial magazine story of when are we going to win the Masters has finally gone away, which is nice.
0: Well, it's great for you, but what about us poor blokes who now have to think of something else to write?
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: it was all too easy in, in March when you
2: had to produce now the now Masters Now you have a it. wealth
1: of riches. You have, oh, you have the right, two right. favorites going into the tournament. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll, uh,
0: we'll come to discuss all that uh, in a moment or two. A couple of things I wanted to touch on first, though, two, uh, two tournaments that uh, have had very different uh, sort of outcomes this week. The Australian Masters Clates officially announced, well, I think it's being, uh, what would they call They were re- reimagining the tournament, which seems to be code for the Australian Masters, is likely no longer. You're down there in Melbourne. I know you're well connected in goals. I don't think this came as a surprise, did it, to us here in Australia, but probably to people outside Australia who would be familiar with the Australian Masters. It's got a great history in terms of names and uh, people that have won it and whatnot.
2: It does have a great history. It started off where a guy called David Inglis who owned a record shop in Melbourne, started a golf And My wife actually worked at the first tournament. And then Frank Williams, who became Greg Norman's manager, bought into the event. And then IMG bought it from them and they worked for IMG and they ran it for 30 years, really. It was a staple of the Australian Tour for a long time. But... The recent years haven't been so kind, although the best event ever was the one Tiger Woods played in mm. the week of the scandal, really. The scandal happened down here, well, p- part of it, where it was uncovered, so, what, whatever, 2010, I think, so 2009. Mm-hmm. So, that was an extraordinary event. And then he, Tiger came back the next year to defend it, but it hasn't been great since then. In fans. And this year, the prize money went down to hard, I think, 750000 which is always a bad sign for a tournament when. The prize money shrinks back to the level it was in 1990, or or, or worse even. So the writing was on the walls. Um, IMG are out at the moment. I think that the government are looking at some, uh, well, there are some potential new events which which they will pick from because the premier here is very keen on golf and wants to support it, and he's bought the World Cup here this year, 2016, at Kingston Heath at the end of the year. And then the President's Cup in 19 and another possible World Cup in 18. So there's got to be some great golf in Melbourne. It just depends on what becomes the staple year-to-year event, really
0: it speaks to a couple of things doesn't it jeff and you know golf tournaments are not easy things but well outside the us especially we really struggle it can't be done without government money but uh tournament, there's just no guarantees in go a tournament like the australian masters it would've been unthinkable 10 years ago if you suggested it would be off the calendar before 2020 uh, and yet it's happened it, it it it's a tough gig isn't it running golf events
1: well, especially when the calendar goes year-round. It's just uh, – it's impossible to uh, – at some point, sponsors can only uh, – there are only so many of them and there are only so much money that they can throw at these things. And uh, it's dreadfully unfortunate to us because we've always enjoyed that event, especially when it goes to great golf courses. And I uh, I just can't fathom that uh, somebody can't make it work. And I, I, I guess, Clay, from what I gather, what you just said, that, that the World Cup in kind of an odd way – may have heard it, in a sense, because government money and interest is
2: going to that? Is that well, no, technically th- accurate? No, I don't think so. I think the Premier has got a very high golf IQ, and I think he... Well, I know he was at the Masters last year, and I think he sort of saw it and thought, well, you need to be doing better than this. I mean, the crowds were poor. The event was a much mm. diminished event from what it was when Greg was at his best, and so I think he viewed that, you know, we need to do something better than this and IMG, I think, understood that as well. Mm. So mm. You know, I think everyone understood w- what had happened. It was, you know, the problem was when the Masters was a great event and it was in February, was that the best European players had nowhere to mm. play at that time of the year. They either went to South Africa or they came down here. So, you know, in and, and Langer and Seve played a couple of years and Woozy and Faraday and Torrance, all those guys came down to play but they, of course, now play in the Middle East and the European tour goes, well, they've got 52 events almost probably in a year. So, so that sort of, the chance to get those players down at, a, at either no cost or a, a reasonable cost disappeared. So i became reliant on paying one or two big players and they're incredibly expensive and they blow the ball. I mean, Tiger was, I think, two or three million to play at Kingston Heath. So.
0: Three the first year, I think.
2: Yes, yeah, so that makes the budget very difficult to to work. But um, and this year Adam played, Adam Scott played, and my assumption is he dragged Uniqlo in as a sponsor at the last minute. The tournament didn't have a sponsor until the end, so you know, it became the Uniqlo Masters. And again, another bad sign is when a s when a tournament has you know, almost a different sponsor every year. You could run yeah. the number of sponsors the Australian Masters had over the years. You'd probably get to 15 out of, in, the, in the 35 years they played it.
0: doesn't allow you to build anything, does it, Clates? You scramble right. every year just to get the money together to put it on and you just can't build any sort of momentum. Or uh, What's your gut feeling, Clates? I mean, will, will, will the Australian Masters ever come back or will it be replaced by a different event uh,
2: on the no, country? I think it'll be replaced by something different. There's been talk of playing a three-course Dunhill-length style pro-am and probably go to one of, well, the courses they would consider playing at Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Victoria, and Metropolitan probably. So, so you could rotate a three-course thing around those courses. Um, that could
0: work, you know. I really do think that the courses is internationally and all the followers on Shaq's site, that's the sort of thing you want to watch late at night, isn't it, Shaq? Sandbelt golf uh, oh, yeah. on the TV yeah. late at night in America, I mean. Forget about the format and whether you agree or not with that, but, you know, that, that, that could make it work in lots of other ways. Uh, yeah, well, well, we'll wait and see. It is somewhat sad, isn't it, Claude? So it, it, was, it was such a staple of the Australian Tour for so long, but it wasn't a surprise, I guess.
2: Well, it was, and it was but it was a, you know, the Victorian Open back in the late, in the mid, late, late 70s was a much, was a, was a big event. It was the main event in Melbourne outside of the Australian Open when it was played here. But David started. David English started the tournament, uh, and it was still small for I compared to the Victorian Open. But IMG put it on commercial TV, and they threw money at it, and, and it really became a much bigger event than the Vic Open, which, which suffered because of it. But the Vic Open has been revitalised with the men's and women's concept playing together of recent years, and now it's kind of you know the Premier loves that tournament because it's in a you know it's in a political. Electorate out of town that suits him. It's a marginal electorate, and he he likes supporting events in marginal electorates like all politicians do. But it's become a great event. Mm. So it's you know it's a, it's ironic how it's kind of swung back in favour. But Melbourne does need a great event because it's got the best courses in the in, in the country. The opens back in Sydney for the foreseeable future. So eight years, I think, was the deal. Well, six of eight years. So they've got the option to move out of Sydney for two of those years. So it looks like it might go to Royal Queensland in 2020 perhaps and perhaps one in Perth, But um, which is a good thing for the Open. The Open needs to move around the country. It can't just get stuck in Sydney forever, I think. No,
0: of course it is. But, you know, again, it comes down to the money, doesn't it? Where is the money? And the money is in Sydney. Well, it's in Sydney, well, Melbourne and, and the Gold Coast slash Brisbane. So. Well,
2: Emirates are the sponsor of the Open and they want to – lobby the government to have more planes flying to Sydney. So it's quite Sydney. Yeah, indeed.
0: Uh, We'll put all that aside for the moment. We'll see what unfolds with that, but certainly Australian golf fans, and I'm sure those overseas will be uh, hopeful that something will replace the Masters. So we do get to see more great players on great golf courses down here, Shaq. Another tournament that sort of caught my eye this week, apart from just the play was the, the match play, which I know you were at last week and some of the good player side and the day semi-final, as always happens with this, it seems to be. The semi-final was the match of the week as opposed to the final, which yeah. was fairly pedestrian. But either way, we got to see uh, some great golf and a terrific match. But it just felt like that Austin Country Club and that whole vibe of Austin. It was uncomfortable hearing <laughs> Tim Finchin talk about how cool Austin was. <laughs> but he seems to have got it right. That event might have been saved by a venue. It really had a great vibe on the TV. What was it like on the ground?
1: Well, I think part of it is uh, the bar was very low. The <laughs> True. previous venues had been pretty awful uh, in terms of what we know to be good match play golf. And, and, uh, and we, we forget that a lot of people just don't understand how much the golf course can impact match play and make it interesting. And that was apparent here. It was. It's a very uh, beautiful, bizarre sight for a golf course, but it has these great – holes down by the water i don't i don't i care for some of the design elements but i like some of the other the risk reward elements and just being by the water and and the way they uh they switch the nines that those holes were on the back nine and so you couple those elements uh, so many holes that are recognizable and different and a big meeting area where a lot of people can hang out and make some noise and so venue wise it just couldn't it was it just couldn't have been more distinct and different than everything that the match play has has seen in the past um so that that was that was a huge part of it and then and then i thought the players were great Mm. there was almost no moaning about the vagaries of match play you know they still make little comments uh that suggest they're victims you know if i i could play great still lose you can Play. They always say that every year, and yes, we know, and and we know it's rough. And uh, so there was none of that, and then the players just seemed to – I think they kind of realized once they started playing some matches that it is great preparation for the Masters because I thought there'd be a lot of that. Oh, why are we playing match play two weeks before the Masters? Well, it's still golf. And then when you actually go out and watch a match, and I I went out and watched uh, a decent amount of Haas and Adam Scott play a great match on – uh, Friday, my dad went the whole way. I I went a good portion of it, and uh, just seeing the intensity of that match, two players playing well, and all the decision making, and and strategy, and um, the need to kind of be on your toes and trying to do different things. You realize watching it, wow, this is phenomenal preparation for the Masters. This this is almost better than stroke playing away. It it heightens all of your sense, senses and makes you lock in, and and so that was why there. I think there was no complaining that this is a weird format to be playing mm. two weeks before the Masters. Is,
0: is Austin Millennial Central? It looked to be very digital. Isn't it the digital capital? Oh,
1: of yeah. It's, hour, yeah. Yeah, big, it's, there's a lot of uh, tech money and, mm. and, then, and then a lot of kind of a music scene and all that good stuff. So uh, it can't hurt, can it,
0: Jeff? I mean, for a game that has an image still of being quite staid, it can't hurt to be at a venue like that and show some people who maybe otherwise wouldn't see golf, a bit of golf isn't going to hurt, is it, the game, you would think.
1: Yeah, no, the community was really into it. They don't have a lot of big sports teams. Well, they don't have any. So that that really helps that this was a big sporting event coming to town, big name players showing up. And then obviously Jordan Spieth, having gone to the University of Texas right there, added an element where a lot of people just wanted to go see him. Unfortunately, the tickets had to be very limited because of the the site and also because the members bought so many tickets um i think it, I, the number i heard was four thousand which is just astonishing obviously there were corporate sales and things but they, the, they i think got first right and uh they they gobbled them up which is good for them and so the crowd so i actually kind of left people in town wanting more because a lot of them didn't get to go i talked to a couple of people who were a little disappointed it sold out, so they, they'll they have something to build on as they go. and Maybe they figured out how to get a few more people out there. Restricting but, I, tickets, I mean, even Easter is, Sunday, the crowds were really good. Yeah. I they were expecting it to be a kind of a ghost town, and they and it was awesome. Yeah,
0: restricting tickets doesn't always hurt an event, does it? As we've seen with the one we're going to talk about shortly coming up in a week's time, right? But, uh, it can be difficult. Um. Just on there, what's the what's the slogan of the town? Jeff is just the right amount of weird or something? It
1: was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they play that up.
0: Brilliant They're stuff.
1: Coming. It's what they think is weird is uh just just a little bit strange for Texas they could come out here <laughs> and I suppose. And yeah, yeah here that would make must, their heads spin just go down Texas. to Venice beach and and any time of day any day of the year and it'll be a lot more weird than anything in Austin yeah come to Newtown in Sydney you might see the same thing yeah. let's
0: uh let's move on let's talk about the first major of the year because of course uh it's taking front and center it's a funny thing isn't it jeff how the masters takes over everything for the last 2 weeks The match play in this week's Houston Open. All the talk is not about the tournament itself that's being played, but how it's going to impact what will happen at the Masters next week. It does just take over, doesn't it? The the excitement reaches fever pitch early for the the first major.
1: Yeah, you feel a little embarrassed that the match play – I didn't ask any Masters questions in press conferences or anything, but some people just have to because it's the only chance you get to talk to a Mm. player. But you feel a little dirty or a little bit – a wrong asking a masters question after somebody's just played some great match or something. It it uh but and the tour doesn't really like it, I don't think, but they need to accept that that's just the reality that these events are the build up to the Masters. And and I I just think it's been an unbelievable build up in terms of just seeing every player you hope to see play well Uh, show some signs of life going into Augusta that you think have a chance to play there. And let's be honest, it's, it's down to a dozen probably who really truly have a great chance to win there. If that, Um, so it's been, I just, I mean, every week it's, it's, I mean, I would tell you if there were some weeks I just don't want to watch and, and every week's been phenomenal. It,
0: it certainly has. Clates, I think Jeff touched on something there. We might be able to – it's always the most anticipated major because there's a seventh-month break since the last one, which helps it enormously, its place on the car- calendar of the Masters. But 86 was something special. 96 was something special for different reasons, which we didn't <laughs> enjoy so much here in Australia. 06 was uh, not so much, but can the trend continue? 2016, uh, from your point of view, uh, are you looking – forward to a masters next week that might be one of the greats when all's said and done and we look back in 20 years
2: yeah because it's all the i mean McElroy, day spieth scott watson they're all playing well i mean all guys who've played well there before great players i mean it seemed like that everyone forgets about the 75 masters i love that masters the weisskopf miller nicholas one that was a great masters to watch and Seems like if you could somehow get the the collision of all those players in contention like that, that, that would be amazing. And eighty six, the same thing really happened. I suppose you kite and Nicholas and Norman Balasteros. Seventy five was the one kind of where there were three best players in the world, but playing amazing golf at the end. And if we can get that, that would be tremendous, obviously. But now the the interesting thing for Australians is that we're now dominating the tour in America, which is very nice to see. Winning mm. every event seems like.
0: Well, two of our players are. The rest are not actually going so great when you look down through the list, Clates, but certainly Day and Scott. What are your thoughts, Clates, on uh, – we'll talk about Adam Scott first and then Jason Day. Scott very cleverly was asked about the Masters after he won in Florida at the the WGC there at Doral and was very quick to put the favouritism on. Bubba Watson, whilst claiming that he wasn't doing that just to put the pressure on Bubba. But Scott, to me, looks a different person. He did that brilliant Q&A on the PGA Tour website last week, which was just fascinating reading. And I know you posted the link to that, Jeff. But Adam Scott, to me, feels like there's a 15th club in his bag. He's a changed person, Clayton. You've known him for a long time. Do you get that sense that he's kind of grown into his position in the game? He seems a little bit like Kari Webb 10 years ago. He seems to be more comfortable within himself now uh, and his position in the game. Do you get that sense? And is that important? When it comes to strutting around the golf course,
2: I well, he was. It always struck me he's been pretty comfortable. I mean, he had, he always had the great game, which gives you a lot of comfort. But I wonder whether the just getting rid of that long putt is helping. You know, the, the the, what's he going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to manage this change? And I saw him play the Presidents Cup, and uh, Doug Ferguson and Phil Mickelson had described his putting as horrendous on Saturday, and then I watched him play on Sunday against Fowler, and he putted brilliantly. Yeah. So I was sort of less fearful than – I mean, I heard people tell me he was going to lose his card. i has got to lose his card next year. <laughs> to put up with a short putter, which was such a <laughs> lunacy. I mean, it was a joke. I mean, you can't, I mean if, if you talk to Mark Brody about the important stats in golf, it's strokes gained and he's, he's leading strokes gained with the, with the, through the green. So you're not going to lose your card if you're the best Chetty Green player on the tour. Yeah, so nice. that was madness. And, of course, he went out with a short putter, forced to change. He goes with the short putter and – the question is, how many Thomas did the long putter cost him? Right. Now that be putts, I mean, you know, it was a. I mean, I used the long putter for six months. It was just another way to putt for me. It was just like another, it was just a different putter. Yeah. But, you have every
0: right to feel a bit smug, Clotes, because you've been saying that same thing for the last sort of 18 months whenever the topic's come up, that it might be the best thing to happen to him in some ways. And I think it probably has been. And funnily enough, Peter Senior, the same over in Perth. He stepped on the very first green there and had a nasty little sliding five-footer. The first time he'd used a short putter in competition and banged it in the middle of the hole, and he's been fine ever since. So it's kind of funny how it's really fizzled as an issue, hasn't it? I mean, Bernhard Langer aside, the whole long putter issue is kind of fizzled. Well, how hasn't? about
1: well, I wouldn't go there's, there. There's one little thing going on there, but I don't know if Clay has been following it. But well, there are a lot of people who are really struggling with how close Bernard Longer yeah, and I Billy know, Mayfair have those. Contentious. Have, have their, their hand to their shirt and their chest. That was well, always going
0: to be an issue, though, wasn't it, Jeff? We talked uh, about that. Yeah, but, I guess. You know, that, that was going to be difficult to police simply because if somebody decided to do that one inch off the chest thing, it was going to be hard to. To see what, what, what's your sense, what, what's your thoughts on that, Claude? So I imagine you would have heard some rumblings around the place.
2: Wow, well, you know, I would trust Bernard with my life. If mm. he said he's moving the thing away from his chest, he's, move, he's moving it away from his chest. Um, but he may feel it pretty dodgy the other day. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, at some point, when is someone going to say, I'm not signing your car? I don't believe you. <laughs> you know, is that going to happen?
1: Yeah. Jeff? I-
0: would it happen? a big I don't call. <laughs> it take a certain personality to do it. And we know Norman made an accusation against Izaki all those years ago in Japan, which was madness. But it's pretty rare, isn't it? That, uh-
1: it is. It's Lanny Watkins on the senior – or excuse me, the PGA Tour Champions broadcast. Uh, let me get that branding yeah. correct. Uh, he, he, he points it out. He oh, yeah, you just can't believe how close he's got that hand to mm-hmm. the chest. <laughs> you just would love to know what Lanny says in the production meeting uh, when they're watching some of the tape and they're zooming in. You just, uh, he, he's thrown it out a few times like he's he's a little suspicious.
0: And, of course, you pointed to a golf digest story that suggests, Jeff, there's quite a few people in America who just ignored it altogether.
1: Yeah, continuing to that was fascinating, the, wasn't it? The yeah, rankin'. Mike Satura uh, uh, had his, just reached out to the golf course Ranking panelists, uh, who are a lot of good players and club pros and things like that, and, and it was six percent of the the people responded that their they knew their course was just looking the other way on the anchoring, and I thought that was fascinating. I didn't even I wouldn't have even thought to uh, ask that question of people that that clubs had taken that initiative at this point and uh so that was fascinating that 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 many have and i I wonder if more hear about it will do the same thing
0: doesn't it speak though jeff to the precarious nature of the governing body's hold over the game yeah people just decide they don't want to play well they don't have to and there's nothing to compel them and that includes the pga tour and i know we i know i've been guilty of you think well if the usga just changed the rules about clubs you know everybody follows suit because they're the governing body not necessarily so and i think Part of what Fincham did with the, you know, the anti-anchoring ban and saying they weren't going to support it was really a bit of a show of, you know, what if necessary we would make our own rules. So if you want to roll back the ball, we won't necessarily follow suit. And it that really speaks to that, uh, you know, they've got no real authority, do they, the USGA in reality?
1: Ah, uh, well, they have authority, but I think it, they're mm. they're losing their grip on some of this stuff when people are. Uh, and you, in the knowing how many times we've discussed bifurcation and how much people have resisted that, and now how much more people are mm. open to that idea and this this concept that why on earth is golf the only sport where we're rigidly trying to uh, enforce the same rules for for everybody when every other major professional sport um, probably really doesn't quite do that. Tennis maybe is fairly close, but even they tweak balls for majors and do different things and um, so I think that's an interesting change for them that, that, that the public just kind of says, why? why why, would why would we have to be treated uh, the same as the professional?
0: So I suppose, Clay, it's, it's, it's driven so much by participation, golf fans and spectators. You know, but because we participate, we like to watch the pros. And I suppose for so many years, the games were somewhat similar. It hasn't been the case, though, has it for 15 years, if you go to a golf tournament and watch the professionals play, you really don't recognise it as the game you see on Saturday morning at the club when you go down and tee up in your once a week comp, is it?
2: Well, it's beyond belief how far these guy's hit. I played with Jeff Ogilvy the other day with a wooden – he plays Arizona Country Club with a wooden driver and six clubs he plays with. And I mean, it's just – I mean, he said, I'm a long hitter, but I'm not long by the tour stands anymore. Yeah, you, know, you almost need to play with these guys to see how far they hit the ball I mean it's fine to go I mean I go and hit a nice drive and he just sits at 60 yards past me it's like I mean, they, you know, they, there's no relationship in the in, to the game they play to anybody else at all now but I mean the, the, the long part of thing and people not adopting it in America there's a fundamental difference I think generalizing perhaps a little bit between golf in Australia and golf in America is that most golf in Australia is played under competition conditions. Yeah, most right. members who go to the club play the, the vast majority of their rounds in competitions. Yep, that's but in America, Jeff, I guess it's somewhat different where most people who go and play golf aren't. They're, they're playing just golf. They, they play yeah. golf. But there's not an organised club competition every day of the week, which there is in Australia pretty much. Mm,
0: absolutely. And I think you probably saw the, the, the outcry in America about not allowing uh, cards that haven't been signed by another handicap. Well, it was a huge controversy, wasn't it, Jeff? Whereas here in Australia, we were staggered by the notion that you'd allow anybody to submit a card that wasn't signed by at least two people. Right. It's the complete opposite.
1: Yeah. No, and, and, yeah, we... Um, it's different culture. It is. Yeah.
0: It doesn't mean right or wrong,
1: just <laughs> a different leave culture. Leave it at that.
0: Yeah, leave <laughs> it at that. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Clates about five topics ago. 86, 96, both special 06, 96, 2016. Uh, you sort of touched on it, the most anticipated. But it, what does it take for, to get that truly... Special result. What would we look back on Monday week and say, "This is what made this master special." What needs to happen is it that 1975 thing that Clates referred to, where you've got three of the games best and they swap the lead on the back nine. I guess that's probably what we're looking for, isn't it? Does it matter which one wins? I guess is then the next question.
1: Yeah, the Masters always prompts everybody to want a back nine shootout, and um, I think that for me, the ideal would be a, a more of a, a little more of a mix. You know, I've I've been watching some of the '86 Masters, and the mix of playing styles on that leaderboard, and old and young, and uh, and and a lot of people who were not really long hitters were still hanging around. Uh, I just don't feel like that is the case. I don't I don't see how any uh, Zach Johnson can contend on Augusta. Uh, national anymore the way the way that they, they set it up and and just the way it's been playing, speed's kind of like on the the the
0: fringe, isn't he Really, just
1: on the fringe, really. Yeah. So I, to me, that's always more fun when you get a you get an old and a new, and that's what makes the '86 Masters to me a little more. Well, one, I was four years old in 1975, so I didn't watch it, but uh, that's what makes that one so special to me that there's that variety of of uh, characters. But then you know something like '96 where it's just the the two top players and and, uh, something incredible happens. Uh, And poor Fowl, though. He just doesn't get the credit he deserves. We did a conference call with CBS today on on their telecast, and, and nobody asked about the 20th anniversary. And towards the end, Jim Nance finally brought it up kind of jokingly but yeah he shot 67 that day yeah mm. norman blew it but god he also shot 67 mm. which is a pretty good score to Augusta, i would think uh, most days and uh, under pressure mm-hmm. yeah sunday and six behind but that would be kind of fun too <laughs> you know a jason day adam scott just break away from the field and then just have a crazy two-man shootout you know that yeah i think i think as long as we, we just feel like uh, the winner is deserving ultimately that's always the fun part is that you just get that walk away with that sati- satisfied sense that it was just a great tournament and and the, no, the course was not too much of a story or the weather wasn't too much of a story and um, and I think that's been the thing that's been nice at Augusta the last few years they've been sh- trending back in that direction instead of the setup committee being the story or the course changes uh, kind of uh, dampening the the fun and i think they could go uh a lot uh mm. further but obviously they're they're uh, they're taking baby steps on that front to try and, and generate fun and excitement
0: he's doing a pretty good job in terms of the masters brand uh, for want of a better term globally, Billy Payne, isn't he? Uh, he doesn't seem to put a step wrong, the Asian amateur, the Latin American championship and everything about the Masters makes the Masters more um, revered by people, everything that they seem to do. They, they get most stuff right, don't they? Leaving the course and all that sort of stuff aside, our views on how it's changed over the years. But as a tournament and a brand, you, you go a long way to find anyone doing it better than Augusta National, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, the only thing I would quibble with is the part three contest, which I think it's fascinating that Rory's sitting that one out this year, and everything else they they've just done an impe- impeccable job, just with every every detail, and um, and yeah, some people criticize the amateur events, and they knew that would happen because early on that would they wouldn't be the strongest fields that are they won't be as strong as they probably will be in five ten years when they've they've created some new players and all that and they just are willing to accept that and i think that's admirable as well but they've uh they really are just uh they're they're doing a lot of things well and and some people also roll their eyes at the drive chip and putt but then for, for those there are plenty more who've seen it and understand what they're trying to do there and and really appreciate it. Well,
0: you you saw it in 2014 at the age of Pacific. You were at the age of Pacific, weren't you, Clive? I think you were there. I remember seeing you God, I can't remember the last week. No,
2: like- well, no, I was somewhere. Oh, no, I wasn't. It I wasn't was somewhere in the state or overseas or something. What
0: what what stood out that week to me was what Augusta National have done brilliantly. Is they have created a generation of golfers for whom the Masters is the most important tournament on earth. And in ten or fifteen years' time you know, that will really start to pay dividends. I mean, everyone sort of always thinks the Masters is important, et cetera. But in this part of the world, Clayton, the Open was really the the preeminent tournament, wasn't it, probably until the 90s when, you know, Norman had all those runs and whatnot. But I think Augusta National have sort of switched that. And for a lot of people, I know in America, Jeff, a lot of people think the Masters is is the best of the four majors. And I think they're starting to – that that – that is seeping around the world on the back of some of these initiatives that they've taken. And certainly the players in that field, you talk to Ryan Ruffles, Clates, and the the number one tournament that they all want to play and win is the Masters, isn't it? And that's very clever on the part of Augusta National. And it takes time to build and they're investing that time
2: in doing it. That's true. And I guess it was, you know, partly built on the back of China. The Asian amateur was a way to ingratiate China with the Masters, but... It's a bigger question, but where's China going with golf, Jeff? I mean, we we to speak to Dan Washburn again Oof. about yeah know, with golf in China because it's it's a much different landscape than it was five years ago. All the courses closing and being banned, and you know, I'd be fascinated to see it what his take was on the future of golf in that part of the world. You're
1: right. Claude. Yeah. This Thank golf course you. they just destroyed. It's, it's just kind of an amazing story because it was one that was actually approved um, and actually was built in a, in an environmentally careful way. And of course, comically they, 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 I mean, they made this point to bring out the bulldozers and their photographs, and, and then they're going to return it to farmland, which is uh, – and they think that's actually going to be cleaner, which is kind of comical. So there's really a, an incredible sort of war on the game there, and and um, yeah, it doesn't that, – that element doesn't bode well, but I think golf will survive just fine if China ends up not embracing it. It's just uh, more of the people who are looking to expand certain sales markets. Well, it's the uh,
0: business of golf, isn't it? Quite, yeah, and, they want, And they've really hitched their wagon to sort of China in particular, but Asia generally, haven't they, in the last sort of 10 feet? This is the last part of the world where you've really got the potential for growth. There's both money and opportunity and all those sorts of things to sell the dream of golf to people. Um, I would think there'd be some nervous people in some of those uh, some of those companies if, you know, golf in China starts to, to go backwards. What, what was the story behind that? Is that just a show of... So flex of muscle on the part of the government, Jeff, to, to bulldoze a course that's been legitimately built?
1: Yeah, clearly that was the the wow. point of the story. I didn't ask Dan Washburn what he thought of that course in particular being singled out. I'd be kind of curious what mm. his uh, take was. But that that was it. No, it was just a show of muscle and, and uh, disdain and, and a, <laughs> a few other things uh, for the game because as the, the the piece I posted on my site pointed out, it, it doesn't really make any sense if you're claiming this is some environmental wasteland and then you're, uh, you're going to return it to farming where the, the use of uh, chemicals and things is, is far worse than what the golf course was using. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, you've just come back from the States, I think, haven't you, Clayton? You've been over there. You've got some course projects in there. You mentioned that you played – golf with Jeff. What's, uh, what's your take on golf in America? It's, uh, we've discussed how it's a bit different to here, but what do you see when you wander around golf courses in America that interests you?
2: Why? Well, like America itself, it's the best and the worst of many things. You, know, and you, can't, you can never generalize about golf in America. I, was, I played with a kid the other day. I was talking about American golf courses, though American golf courses were what you see on TV from the PGA Tour, which I was sort of discussing the notion that that's not American golf at all, really. It's one part of American golf, but don't think that it'd never been there. And I said, well, don't think that everywhere you go in America, you find what you see on the PGA Tour. You, National Golf Links and Shinnecock and Cypress Point and the Valley Club and Pasatiempo and Bandon Dunes. You now, the long, Pinehurst, the long list, Seminole, the long list of great golf courses are nothing that don't demonstrate any of the characteristics of golf courses only you see on, on the TV, so you can never generalize about golf in America. But, I mean, we went to Talking Stick in Arizona, two Corn Crenshaw courses, which I think are brilliant courses in the desert. I mean, you know, much different from most other desert courses in, our, in Arizona. And I mean, I played there with Jeff when he was the U.S. Open champion and he got into an argument with the pro there <laughs> hey. who, who asked him what he oh, thought boy. Was the golf course. And Jeff, I mean, oh, boy. <laughs> Jeff's, a member of, Jeff's a member of Whisper Rock which is a tremendous place I mean what a place to be able to practice and play and he said wow I love this golf course uh, talking about the, the, the Coron course but Talking Stick he said I love this course he said, he said you know it's a better course than Whisper Rock and he finished up getting into this it was kind of a friendly argument but you know, it wasn't nasty at all but the pro at Talking Stick couldn't believe that Jeff was saying that Talking Stick was a better golf course than Whisper Rock he just couldn't believe it but it's a Brilliant, simple golf course. Now, no mounding, you know, cart pass brilliantly hidden. great strategy, just, just so odd that people in Arizona or Scottsdale don't seem to rate Talking Stick at all when for me it was the best course I saw there by a long way.
0: Isn't that fairly common? Isn't that one of the things that faces the game, Claves? The interest in the golf courses themselves, which is the most interesting thing about the game, I think all three of us would agree, it's not the view that most people hold there. It's an acquired taste. And what golf that gets held up as being a great example of golf, and we see this, I think, in Sydney a lot, is not necessarily good golf courses, but it's images and things that are attached to golf. And that's a prime example. Isn't it? That, that that discussion you just talked about between Jeff and the pro of the club was that, you know, golf's done well at creating this aspirational thing. And a course just needs to be aspirational, not necessarily good, to get the, the market money, so to speak. Is, is there something in that and is that really what, Golf kind of needs the, the, the true beauty of the game. Once people are exposed to it, tends to grab most people. But a lot of people never experience a great golf course, uh, perhaps in their lifetime.
2: Well, leading on a little bit from that, it's true. Was I spoke to a, a couple of LPGA players at who were members of Talking Stick, uh, sorry, not talk, uh, Shady Oaks, where we we're going to do some design work. And the staggering thing to me about almost the universal perception of Royal Melbourne, which hosted the Australian Women's Open last year, was that they just, hate is too strong a word, but they didn't like the golf course at all. So to the point where one of the players said, who played well last week, said, Royal Pines is a better golf course than Royal Melbourne. I mean, it's beyond beyond belief that you would say, even would even end your head to think that Royal Pines was a better golf course than Royal Melbourne. But they they judge the golf course purely on the way it was set up, which was not ideal. The Greens were, in my opinion, too hard and too fast for a women's event, especially in February when it was early in the season. and you know for the benefit of the tournament, you don't want the best players going down there. And it hurt the tournament this year because a lot of good players didn't come back even though the course was at the, at the Grange was tremendous this year and universally admired by all the players I think. but you know they look at how the course plays and judge the course on that alone and you know, they, they, I mean, none of them clearly looked at the architecture or, or had any sort of interest in the architecture. I mean, this amazes me that you could go to a place like Royal Melbourne or Shinnecock Hills or the National St Andrews or, and, and not see the brilliance of the architecture, but it's just not a factor in the, the, the mindset of many players. They, that, that's not what the, that's not what they're looking at. Does it suit my game? I mean, the famous Stacey Lewis comment, Royal Melbourne doesn't reward good shots. I mean, well, it doesn't if, you know, you want to, I mean, I went to the tournament in Phoenix where 27 under par one, what's a good shot? A wedge that lands four feet from the hole and stops? Is that a good shot? Well, if you hit oh, 18 yeah. of them.
0: that's <laughs> It's a good score. What, what do we do about that, Jeff? I remember when we first discussed, you know, doing this State of the Game podcast. One of the things we sort of said was, you know, it, there should be something educational about it. Try to, try to get people to understand the importance of golf courses and the architecture of them. I mean, I'm not convinced we're winning that battle. Jeff, are you?
1: <laughs> oh, I don't agree at all. No, I think. Well, I think compared to, and I think, Clates, you would agree. Compared to a few years ago, we are we've made enormous progress. at People, at least, being a little bit more uh, savvy about what they see, and well, I mean, just let's look at Austin Country Club. The tour, the PGA Tour, a few years ago, wouldn't have recognized the importance of the golf course in match play, and now they do, and that's just through changes in kind of the Popular uh, cultural uh, view of of what a golf course should be and how it should play, and players being at least the men being more educated. I think that the LPGA players are kind of where the men's tour players were about ten years ago. And since more of the men have been exposed to better golf courses, I think it's made them more discerning and made them, with a little bit of education, realize that it's not all about where they want to hit the ball, but where they need to hit the ball to score. And so I think a little bit's just exposure with the women, getting exposed to better golf courses and maybe then having somebody push back a little bit when they say some of those things. Um, But I know I feel like we're we're in a much better place with what people realize is uh, good golf. It's not great, but it's definitely improved. There's no question we've had
0: a bunch of golf courses built in the last sort of decade and a half that are far better than we got for – 25 yeah. or, or 30 years before. But what about the importance of that? I mean, everyone talks about the grow, the game and all the rest. Of it. it seems to me that it's one of the, the, the true joys of golf and that one-on-one connection of playing, you know, being out early in the morning and I'm going to go down to Bamboogle, Junes, in I can't wait the excitement about seeing the golf course and just being immersed in the game at a great site. I don't know. Do we play that up enough or am I missing something there?
1: Uh. Well, now wait, now we're, there's two different things. There's so that's a, we've talked about the professional game. Yeah, and yeah, well, no. yeah not, not the professional. I game. think yeah, where we have not. We don't need to grow that, Jeff.
0: <laughs> it's going not, all right.
1: Where, <laughs> yeah, they're fine. Yeah. Where yeah, where we haven't made enough progress, and I think a perfect example there again is is Austin. Uh, they have this public golf course in the middle of the city, this wonderful green space that that is needed in the middle of the city, and then also is a, a beloved golf course. And they do have a wonderful group of people working really hard to try and save it. I don't know what their chances are, but that's a little bit of an unusual story because in most cities you go to here in the United States, at least the appreciation for that, that just enjoyable course with some character, it's, it's very walkable and fun to play. It's there, but it's not, you know, when people talk about building a new golf course or putting money into something, they want to. Build a. They still want to do the big seven thousand yard. Can it host a tournament? Nobody really has figured out a way to make that. uh, To 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 convey the importance of those kinds of places like Alliance Municipal and Austin, uh, the importance of those to the game more than a first tee and and some of these other grow the game programs that that just having a nice facility, well maintained, with a little bit of character. Is, is and then letting people kind of discover it on their own and learn the game at a place like that, it's still difficult to convey to people that saving those places is still more important than anything else. I know. Well, we're
2: making progress, but it's still a ways to go. Unfortunately, we're going to lose a whole bunch of courses in the meantime. But, but I, mean, I mean, Jeff, that's exactly what Rustic Canyon is, isn't it, really? I mean, it's a great, you know, reasonably cheap, I think how much they charge around there, but, I mean, tremendous public golf course. That you know, and, and, and Talking Stick as well. I mean, you know, they're two tremendously good and cheap public golf courses in America that everyone yeah. can. Take.
1: But probably- and yet, and yet, they have they have audiences, and there are people who don't like them, and there are people who love them, and and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm more concerned with. I mean, we had this an amazing run of public golf courses built under the Works Progress Administration program during the Depression, and all the great architects were involved and. Every city seems to have one, and, and they're neglected, and they're run down. And we still haven't gotten uh, something where people figure out a way to to reinvigorate those and uh, make it make sense for everybody and make people realize the importance of that outside of golf. There are examples, obviously, that have been great uh, stories, but it really hasn't gone to the next level. And that's kind of one of the things you'd really wish the USGA would could have parlayed their love of classic design and uh their green sections expertise and they're trying they're moving in that direction to to give these places no excuse when it comes to kind of figuring out ways to reinvigorate the course but um there's it's still not it's it's unfortunately there's just going to be so many cool places that are probably lost in the meantime is is it takes a while to get people to understand the role these places play which I guess is
2: what happened to Bethpage, wasn't it? I mean, I mean, they kind of revitalized that place. It seemed for the and I mean, obviously, it was a unique. Yeah, and that took a U.S.
1: Open to make that happen. Yes. It's the problem; is it just always seems to need a tournament, and then, as we know, with an example like Harding Park, uh, the bringing the tournament there doesn't always uh, yield a great final finished product.
0: <laughs> Diplomatically put, Jeff, uh, yeah. <laughs> very diplomatic. Isn't the problem though with all of the grow the game initiative? I don't see any. Of, that that just wants to tackle the simple question. If you put golf clubs into the hands of 100 people and let them experience the game, 10, surely, will fall in love with it, won't they, Clates? All these grow the game Issues seem to, to want to do everything but put a golf club in people because the game's too hard or I don't know what the reason is, but... Foot golf and big hole golf and all this other sort of stuff, but but isn't it isn't there a simple numbers game there? If you put golf clubs into the hands of enough people, then a percentage of them will take it up. And where are the initiatives that that do that? I mean, you've put a played primes I'm sure, with people who'd never played the game before. clay so that's a horror story that no doubt befalls every touring pro at some point. What's your take on on how you get people to actually fall in love with the game because they will?
2: No, I mean, I, I mean, if I hadn't started golf as a Kid, when because my parents bought a house in the back of a golf course, and I started to caddy. I don't know if I, you know, if I hadn't been exposed by accident, pure accident, to that, whether I would have played golf. And if I'd got to my age now and thought, well, I wouldn't mind trying that game, but I, I wouldn't know where to start. It's like, you know, if I went to start to play tennis, I wouldn't really know where to start. Don't. Mm, so I guess people just they kind of look at it and go, well, how do you how do you how do you go and do that? But I mean, golf's a pretty accessible game in Australia. Having said that, I mean, there's lots of public golf, and it's not that complicated to go and. But it's, you know, it's, all, it's difficult and it's time-consuming. and it's
0: Aren't they the joys of it, though? I tire of hearing about how it's hard and that's no good and it takes, oh, God, six hours out of the house playing something that challenges you that isn't work. I would have thought that's a selling point. It is for me.
2: And it still goes back to Mackenzie's argument about people giving up golf because of the golf courses. The golf courses are not interesting. I mean, I think the public courses in Melbourne are pretty dull affairs. I mean, they're rudimentary at best. And if you could somehow get the people who control the leases, I mean, I mean, they're all leased from the local council and the leases aren't long enough for the investors to invest money into making the golf better. So it just sort of stays at a very basic level and it gets people started. But, you know, if, if you could, I mean, my, I mean, I love playing golf for the thrill of hitting the ball for the first couple of years. And I went to Royal Melbourne and, Metropolitan and the, and the Sandbox courses and realise there was another whole level of golf again that was not about playing golf but about where you played it. But, you know, I don't know that everyone has that experience.
0: What do you reckon, Shaq? How do we... Is there something in that? Do we just need to expose that? Wasn't there a program in Scotland where they were intent that every school child by the age of 10 or 12 would have been exposed to the game? And is that a workable notion or is that fairyland that I'm living in with that as the idea?
1: No, I think they. It's like anything. People have to discover it on their own to really embrace it. If there's if it's forced on them, I don't think they they enjoy it as much. So that's why I I love seeing golf courses that that have great junior programs and clinics and things and let the kids kind of figure it out and then and then they go out and play it. If and you know if two out of the ten take to it, that, that those are great numbers. And uh, why I, it's just whenever these things seem so forced and and scripted and they're telling you about life skills and uh it just it just i don't i don't understand how that works or how that ultimately uh produces somebody who's really passionate about sports whereas just having a golf course where, where a parent can drop them off and they can hang out and have fun and then go out and play and and uh discover just just the enjoyment of playing uh just just is so much more powerful than Somebody preaching life skill, the the ten
2: core values that. Uh... But I read a story about Annika Sorenstam wrote a letter to her daughter yesterday. It was, it was somewhere somewhere on the website somewhere, talking about when she first went to the golf course in Stockholm with her sister, and she said we did everything but play golf. You know, we had milkshakes and kicked a ball around, and so sort of golf was the last thing we wanted to do really when we were little kids, and then we kind of discovered the joys of playing it, but. It, 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 when we first started getting dropped off the golf course, golf was the last thing we did. We sort of fell for it last, yeah. which is an interesting way to look yeah, at it. it is. Well, it's a very interesting golf. It was all, all the other things they did at, at the golf club before they actually went and played golf.
0: Yeah. I suppose the funny thing about golf clubs that I've always thought is that you don't get a lot of casually interested golfers. People tend to either love it and it becomes a huge part of their life or they decide it's not for them. There's not – they're not a great percentage in the middle ground, is there? That play once or twice a year, and do you know what I mean? It's a if you can get people, you'll get them for life. They'll be they'll be immersed in the game, won't they? And that that's I suppose one of the great things about the game.
2: That's true. Although I think there are a lot of people who play golf who are they play golf, but they're not particularly interested in the game. That's true. Yeah. Outside of their own mm-hmm. games, they don't read about it. They don't sort of go to tournaments. They don't
0: listen to Shack House
2: travel to many other courses other than their own. They're just going to go and play golf and it's it's a social thing where they catch up with friends and they enjoy the playing of the game for the four or five hours it takes a week to play, but they don't think about it much other than that. They just play golf and they they take from the game what they want to take from it but don't have any interest in it outside of that, which is fine because that's the reality of the game. But I always thought the most interesting thing about golf was not just how I played, but the whole game was interesting. You know, the, 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 the books were in, I mean, there's so so much great writing about golf and so many great golf courses to go and see. And I mean, people tend to, they travel, but they travel and tick off the bucket list courses and don't go and seek out the interesting ones. And you know, they're swayed by, when they go to Queenstown, they go to Jack's point, but don't go to Arrowtown. I mean, Jack's point's a beautiful golf course, but Arrowtown, which is a $35 public course 10 miles away, is the coolest little golf course in the world. But they don't go there because they, they, they haven't heard about it or they just, well, they would go there and think it was silly, which is, you know, it's silly in a way that North Berwick's silly, which is, isn't yeah, that sure. how golf ought to be? Really silly. Isn't, isn't golf a silly game fundamentally? Well, yeah, absolutely.
0: And if it wasn't, it'd be terrible.
2: Yeah. And- hey, can I, yeah. uh, b-
1: no. b- before you, uh, before we move on to anything else, Clay, I, I, I'm curious. I don't know if you can talk about it, but, um, do Shady Oaks, do they have a par three course? That's that's uh, they or do like a kids' course or and an, a beginner's course. What, what Jeff was telling me about it at Tory Pines earlier this year. What yeah. what makes it so so good? Because that's the other thing that just drives me nuts is is uh, the the lack of par threes and short
2: yeah. course options. Well, it's where Hogan used to practice. The, the the tree under where he practiced was up by the ADST on the big course, and there's a sort of 10 or 12 acre chunk of land right in the middle of the golf course. Curiously Trent Jones didn't use it as part of the golf course because it's a tremendous little piece of land but there's a very rudimentary nine hole public course on it and our first job there is to rebuild that. So the plan is to build a nine hole par three course with one par four which is basically what it is now. So 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 that's the simple plan but the more complex plan is to build a golf course with where, where we can get maybe ten or twelve or fifteen holes out of it, where you can play from Hogan's tree down to the third green, which is where he hit basically, and make a great short par four out of that. And you can play to the ninth green, which is a par three across a kind of brick, through, cool kind of wall over a creek as a par three. You can play it from the other side of, of the eleventh fairway as a reachable par five, and and so have it as a free form place where, where you can go right. out and throw your balls down and play any sort of golf you want yeah. only limited by your imagination so you can play from the second tee to the third green and the eighth tee to the fourth green and you know, you know I think it's going to be a tremendous place to try out some bunker styles and some grasses and but, but you know we're truly only limited by our imagination in what we can build and then the players are only limited by their imagination in what they can play so I think it's a chance to do something amazing out there, really, because the land's great. There's enough space. And it's got the history of of Hogan's kind of, you know, it's where he used to practice. But I think you can make it just an amazing place for for everybody to play golf, not just old guys and women, but, you know, Chad Campbell and Jarena Pillar can go and have a great time there as well.
1: So it'll remain
2: open to the public? Why well, it's not a public course? So oh, I it's, you said
1: I heard public. I thought okay. I'm sorry. I thought you said it was open to them. I'm, well, well, it's for the it's for the members. Yeah, right? it's for the members.
2: But, okay. yeah, yeah. but you know, I think it's, the concept of what you, you can do there, and I mean you, you did it with the horse course. Wherever, where, where, where was that? At, um, the Prairie Club. Yeah, we did. Club. Yeah. So I, I, I Mike Cocking did a drawing of what we're trying the concept of Shady Oaks and he's you know he's got the drawing of the, the, the whole your, yours and Gil's horse course on that and, you know here's basically the concept of you know let's not restrict golf to a nine hole par three course but well you, you can go and do anything you want out here right so, so if you know it ought to be a concept that takes off you know if it works there then hopefully other people see it and see what you've done out there and you know it's just there's not just one way to play golf really
0: right but that – yes, and doesn't that – what you'd say that points to something, doesn't it, Clates, in that slowly but surely we've come to think of golf as a quite a rigid four par fives and four par threes and it has to be a par 72 and of a certain – all those things about golf – the anarchy that you're promoting there is what makes golf fun, isn't it? And, and Mike Cocking, your partner, he writes uh, a monthly piece for a website that I work for, Dinner in Australia Golf League. Yep. And the one he wrote this week was about the practice facility. And Mike's a good player. I think yeah. he doubled with being a pro for a while. He nearly won the Masters as an amateur, if I recall, he did. back in the early 2000s. And he wrote in there about practice facilities, how they, you know, historically there's not been a lot of thought given to them. And as a kid, yeah. he found himself... He said, you know, the range. The guys that picked up the range ball must have hated him because he wouldn't hit them down the middle. He'd pick gaps in trees down the sides of the, the – yeah. the, and try to hit those and entertain himself. So if the course helps you to entertain yourself, then surely yeah. you enjoy the game more. I think that's what you're sort of talking about there, that the golf shouldn't be rigid. It should be free form. What's been the reaction to that horse course? Sure, I can just outline for people who might not have heard of it what the what the notion of that is. It's kind of like what Clates has described. Isn't it? You tee off from wherever you want to wherever you want.
1: Yeah, it's a 9-hole part 3 course, but we we uh, created obviously a set group of tees and an intended way to play each hole from a general spot, but around those tees there is plenty of room to go elsewhere, there are places where you can go and drop in the sand. And the idea is that whoever has the honor picks where you tee off. That was our our concept. Mm-hmm. And the uh the, the the fun being that if you're if you're you have a little imagination, and uh, and some of the greens are designed so that somebody might like to play a little little left to right kind of cut punch shot, or somebody might like to play a, a, an aerial shot in the green. And the idea is just like the game horse and in, in basketball that you sort of pick these crazy. You have the option to make it really crazy and bizarre, and 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 manufacture shots and distances and uh, whatever you want, really. Uh, and and you know there's there's no hole longer than. Uh, one hundred and forty, I believe, and, and really most of them are in the hundred the sixty to one hundred and five yard hundred ten yard range, and so uh, you take just a few clubs and uh, and it 's just supposed to be fun and, and not carrying a whole bag, but just carrying a few clubs and having some laughs and using your imagination and um, and it really doesn 't take up more than I think about six acres, which isn 't a whole lot i don 't think. Mike Davis would like that, um, wouldn't
0: he? Put the T's on
1: the sides of hills. And yeah, been, the there's been talk <laughs> off and on about uh, doing one of those courses at, at Golf House in New Jersey, and they've they've always kind of, uh, I don't know what's ended up happening with that, but they had talked about it a few times. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, every little, I mean, if more communities had these and uh, they just would, it would just be so much. Every golf course, of course, should have a, a place like that. Or the ability to build it into their targets on their range and shut down the range and turn the range into a, a pitch and putt course, even with little rudimentary greens uh, conditioning kind of situations. It's it just it's just a nice option to have and something different. And because kids have much better imaginations than adults, you yeah. um, know yeah, that was always my dream with the parking lots there at Augusta that they could just they would never do it, but um, build something really rudimentary and kind of let the, the kids sort of discover the design and create the design because you just look at it and the golf holes are right there. They're just beautiful holes and you just need some greens and some tees. Um, but they could, that would be tough. Uh,
2: and Every club should have a Himalayas putting green. I mean, sure, I mean there's yeah. a concept that, you know, it was born out of St. Andrews, what, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of years ago, but I mean, every club should have a great Himalayas putting green. I mean, what a place for kids to just, because everyone can, one can whack the ball on the ground. Mm.
0: Yeah, exactly. You don't need any skills at all to do that, do you? Just imagination. The concept
2: of the horse course in Shady Oaks is that golf doesn't need 150 acres or 50 or 60 acres for a nine-hole course. You can do it in Mm. really limited acreage to to make golf. What's that little course that Mac O'Grady used to play out of in L.A.? Jeff?
1: Oh, uh, uh, Holmby Hills, one of my favorites. Yeah, that's a a little bit of a sore subject right now. I uh, drive by it every day. And uh, they put the pins out about <laughs> three days a week right now. Uh, but a great place for your short game. Corey Paven used to play there a lot when he was at UCLA. Great, you know no, no, nothing really of great interest. but you could you know a little circle for greens, but you could create shots and guys would play UCLA guys. you'd see them over there playing weird shots over the trees. So the, the UCLA golf team today would I don't think they would be caught dead at a place like that practicing, which is kind of funny. I tried, um, yeah. Have a so, here? yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where it's like uh, it's just a little bit of a shift in the game and the way people think. And it's unfortunate because we kind of need to get back to that. And here and by the way, to bring it full circle, uh, Bobby Jones felt like this was the way that golf would grow in the future. And that's why the part three course was built at Augusta. And and sadly, like a lot of things, people didn't really uh, really pay attention to him.
0: <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Apparently, the Masters is on next week. Uh,
1: yes, that's why I thought I'd bring it full circle. Yeah, indeed.
0: <laughs> uh, who's going to win? Let's finish it up with this. That'll do us. Do we need to talk anything more? We, I think we, we know about Augusta and the Masters and what on. Rory's out of the par three, as you've pointed out on your shot, your site.
1: Very very shrewd move on his part. Yeah, I that think so, too, yeah. It's, a, it's just a fiasco. It's, it's a circus, it's, isn't it, it really? I mean, it's silly, yeah. It's just kind of hectic, and it's a... Uh, it's a few hours of the week that a player like that should just be uh, kicking back at their house and, and relaxing instead of, of having a, a boy band caddy man, and, uh, you know, just people screaming and kids running around and taking two hours. And it, it's just unfortunate, I think, cause it, it, it doesn't really, uh, it should still be about the players and because of the, cool thing in the part three is you got you know former major champions teed up Ben Crenshaw playing that this year all sorts of people playing it mm-hmm. and well Jack Fleck played it until, recently, until he just passed away so um Vinci tees anyway. it
0: up every year I think doesn't he Clyde's Finchy's always yeah, there, yeah. Wayne Gray yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. That's yeah. kind of what it should be about, shouldn't it? Is it a is it, yeah. a, is it a decent practice facility for? The, I mean, if, if you took away all the the patrons the and all the rest free? of
1: it, oh yeah. gosh, yeah, you'd have it. If you could play that every day, your yeah. short game would be right. incredible. Just because there's just enough room for imagination, and yeah. there's sort of a couple of bump and run shots, and then there's mostly target golf shots, and it's it's so so fun. Uh, and it's part of the round there at Augusta. When people go and play, they play the par three. But so I think it's great that Rory's sitting that out, and I think it's a nice little statement too to the club because the club does, like I said, they do everything really well. But that's the one thing where their grow the game thing I think's gotten a little bit uh, out of hand. The, the drive, chip, and putt's a great statement. They should just leave it at that yeah. and not turn the par three into to kind of what it's become. And
0: they've kind of been forced to expose more. Augusta's always lived on mystery, hasn't it? And and in the digital age, with each passing year, they're kind of forced to expose a little bit more, aren't they? You know, you only sure. used to see the last few holes now we've been seeing. Even in 96, I remember, handheld cameras, Clates. We got highlights of what had happened on the front nine when the coverage started. Uh, I think they were on about the 8th or ninth when the coverage started live here in Australia, and Norman was on his way to not winning the green jacket. And it was all just some handheld camera highlights from them. wall. now they've got the camera towers; Yeah, the front nine's covered just like the back. But that was only 20 years ago. So, pardon yeah. <laughs> <coughs> I me. Mean, they've had to reveal more and more with each passing year. Uh, on the Master who's going to win? And then we'll wrap it up.
2: Oh, well, it's ob- I think it's too obvious to say the obvious guys. but And, and perhaps Louis is obvious. But Louis won at Lake Carinapp. A couple of weeks ago. and well, that, I asked sorry. him
0: about the Masters, funnily enough. Shaq, to your point, back in February, I was already asking him about mm. the Masters in the press conference. Sorry, yes. Sir. There no. you go.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Caranup's very much like, or very hilly, lots of right-to-left tee shots, kind of hard running, short grass around the green. So there's some relationship between the golf at Karen Up and Augusta, and he played brilliantly there. So, I mean, Louis's not an outside pick, you wouldn't say, but you know, he's played well there before, and yeah, you know, a tremendous player, I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was
0: super impressed with uh, following, and super impressed with Lake Karen up Two am Not sure if I've spoken to you. It was my first trip there, and walking over yeah, the hill, good. walking over the hill on the second was just wow. This is amazing. And props to Peter Euline, might I say, yeah. who um, who played the. I think he played there for the first time last year, and then he said he walked over the the hill on that second. I mean, I've seen this before, and he went and looked up. The Course designer, uh, Mackenzie, because he sort of reminded him of Augusta National. And he has an interest in course architecture, which I thought was fantastic, and I sort of set him right on uh, who'd built it and whatnot. But uh, props to him. So there's one we can put on our list, Shaq Peter Uline, has an interest in golf course architecture. Uh, Shaq, who's going to win the Masters? And then we'll wrap it
1: up. Uh, Jason Day is going to win the Masters. He's uh, done everything right, uh, his schedule, planning, his off season. And then he just plays. He's playing a game that's a little bit different than everybody right now. And uh, I think Adams really close, and Bubba can be really close. I, I, I'll be shocked if those three aren't right there at the end. I know that's entirely predictable and boring, but I, that's the beauty of this run-up we've had. Is every no week yeah. uh, yeah. great competition, and they've been tested. And you just think that, well, everything they've gone through has made these people who are the lead contenders so strong. And But golf's weird. You never know with the vagaries of the weather and, and tee times and stuff. But it just seems like the Masters is the one event where you can watch the buildup and you kind of know now who that golf course is going to favor and who's really put in the work and who's uh, coming in just right. I don't know what's going on with his back and what that whole drama is about. That's probably the only thing to, to worry about. But um, he just, uh, he's, he's looking, he looks great. If he just played a little faster, it'd be, it'd be. <laughs> That's
0: right. Is, uh, he finish, is he finished yet at the match play? I think he just, just, just got off the eight Yeah. Um, has Rory. Slip- you, Rod, Rod, your pick. Well, uh, funnily enough, as I was about to ask you what you're thinking, I kind of like Rory because unlike last year, funnily enough, he's kind of under the radar. Um, yeah. And that I think is really going to help him this year. But I agree. I'm, I'm not exactly, you know, I'm not putting my house on it by any stretch of the imagination, but if I've got to pick one of them, I think the list is, you're right, we all know who's on the list, and it's him and Scott and Bubba and Jason and sort of, you know, Ricky and Phil. Um, yeah, He might. it might just be his year because, you know, he had an eight-month build-up last year of the career grand slam, and this year virtually no one's talked about him for the Masters, really, because Day and Scott yeah. have stolen and Bubba have stolen all the attention. So. I suppose we'll just wait till next week and see what unfolds and maybe talk yes. about it afterwards. So it's been absolutely fabulous to catch up today and not talk about the Masters accidentally, but a great chat anyway. Thank you, Shaq. Most enjoyable.
1: All right. Thank you, Raj.
0: And, Claude. it's always great to uh, to listen to you talk about golf. Thanks for, uh, for your time today as well.
2: Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it.
0: Yep, and I enjoyed it too. We hope you enjoyed it. That's it for this week. We'll be back after the Masters some point with a, a bit of a wrap on what unfolded there. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, writer's retreat provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkinggolf.com